0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Whole Lawyer Project, which highlights Asian American attorneys and leaders throughout the nation and the human stories behind their success. Today, I'm really excited to have Karen Yao. She's a civil rights lawyer and a workers rights lawyer with over two decades of experience working with employees, workers and immigrants. Karen has also served as an assistant attorney general in the Labor Bureau at the New York State Attorney General where she has led investigations into labor violations in numerous industries. She was recently honored by the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association and the Chinese American Planning Council for her pro bono work, which we will speak about later in this podcast. Karen, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm very excited to have you. Thank you. It's an honor
1: to be a part of the podcast.
0: Before we dive into your work and the timely nature of this chat, given all that's going on across the nation in the Asian American community, Perhaps you could first touch
1: on your roots.
0: Can you tell me where
1: you were born and where did you grow up? I was born in Hong Kong and I grew up in Hong Kong until my early teens when I immigrated to United States and we settled in Brooklyn. My family was poor and we lived in a public housing project in Hong Kong. Our family of six actually lived in a flat of about... Maybe a hundred, 150 square feet. Wow. And there was no bathing or toilet inside the flats. We would put up curtains around the the kitchen windows so that we would have a little bit of privacy to bathe. Mm -hmm. And then we would go down the corridor to a toilet that we shared with a neighbor Hmm. I think it was like two neighbors to each toilet stall. And this is something that I have rarely talked about. But the toilet store was what was most private. So my brothers and sisters and I would actually go study there. Wow. Wow. And what brought you to the U.S.? It wasn't really a choice that... I made, right? It's probably something you related to. My parents made a decision Mm -hmm. to immigrate to the US. My father first came here and then petitioned for the rest of the family to come. It was my mother, my older brother, my older sister, and a younger brother and me. Mm -hmm. And by the time when the petition went through, my older brother was too old to come with the rest of the family. And at that point, he, I guess with my parents decided to stay in Hong Kong, he had just gotten into university, he was one of the first of our families to go to college, I got into a law program, and his life was going to be different if he succeeded there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think my parents thought, we don't know what's going to happen to us when we come to New York. So there would be at least one child whose future was more assured.
0: Wow, so once you guys arrived in New York, how did your parents make
1: a living? My parents were both garment workers. My parents were garment workers mm-hmm. when they were in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And when they were both here, they were both they were both garment workers. And what was your childhood
0: like growing up once you
1: arrived? So we moved from the little flat For a family Mm -hmm. of five or six right depending Mm -hmm. on which time period you're talking about to a palatial one-bedroom apartment (laughs) for a family of five in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. and I grew up in uh, the Flatbush area of Brooklyn Mm -hmm. not very far from where I live now. Uh, I live in Windsor Terrace Mm -hmm. and at the same time it's worlds and worlds away. How often did your parents work on a given week? They worked all the time. They worked uh, mm-hmm. days a week, 12, 13, 14 hours a day.
0: Mm-hmm. And what did you and your siblings do during that time? Did you help raise each other? What would
1: you do after school? And what did you do for fun? My sister, when we first arrived in the U.S., was 17 years old. And she went to work right away. Mm-hmm. She eventually put herself through college and she's a professional now, but she went to work right away and she would help parent us by calling us periodically mm-hmm. because that was something that my parents couldn't even do. And my younger brother and I were your latchkey kids, got ourselves home. I was 12, he was nine. And we, like you said, raised each other. We made sure we did our homework. We parent ourselves. My parents and I were among the first wave of really semi-skilled workers and their families to come. We weren't professionals. And when you talked about fun, there wasn't a lot of time for fun. And that was certainly true for my parents. And it was true for the rest of the family, too. So as a kid,
0: how did you envision your future? What did you dream of becoming?
1: The most direct answer would be I didn't dream to become a lawyer. I was tracked into the sciences and my mother wanted me to be a nurse because among our family members, the most professional was a nurse Mm -hmm. and my mother thought, well, you could be like your cousin. Mm -hmm. So my mom thought that being a nurse would make a good living. And I think I was very rebellious, at least internally. And I thought, if my mother wanted me to be a nurse, well, then I am going to become a doctor. <laughs> I was just further tracked into that idea of what David Lett said to you. It's either doctor, lawyer, or failure. Mm -hmm. So my choice was a doctor and it turned out I was horrible in the mathematics.
0: (laughs) Uh, I was also very bad at math and I didn't understand why.
1: (laughs) I single-handedly broke the mold that uh, Asian Americans were good in math. Yes. I I took calculus three times uh, in college and I finally learned that I was not not going to get a good grade Mm -hmm. and pre-med was not the right way for me to go. I switched into taking courses in political science and I had this kind of uh, incoherent idea of maybe becoming a lawyer but Mm -hmm. really didn't have a lot of confidence that I could manage it. Mm -hmm. I had been in the United States less than 10 years when I graduated from college and I just didn't have a lot of confidence that I had either the written or verbal skills to be a lawyer. But you went to law school. I did. Yeah. So at what point did you feel like you could do it? I had a very transformative experience. After I graduated from college, I became a community organizer, Mm -hmm. organizing tenants and workers on the low East side. And I was doing that for almost three years. And it was really during that period of time that one, I gained the confidence that I could be a lawyer and two, that I had the commitment to be a public interest lawyer. I went to law school wanting to be a public interest lawyer. And what about that experience was so transformative? I saw the power of people coming together. I saw the power in acting as a collective. I saw people who were really afraid when they first stepped forward to demand the wages that they were entitled to. And then at the end of the day, persuading other workers that this was the right thing to do. Hmm. And I saw with my own eyes that change was possible and that the law could be a tool, an agent for that social change. And do you still believe that after all these decades? I do. I do. Mm -hmm. There are certainly been times that uh, I've been disappointed. I've been frustrated. I've questioned the direction of the world and the direction of my own career. But I, I do believe it because again, time and again, I've seen it happen. I have seen the number of Asian American lawyers in the profession grown. I've mm-hmm. seen the number of Asian Americans in the legal academia grown. I have seen the progress that my friends who are gay and lesbian made in the LGBTQ movement. So I believe it's very much possible. So you go to law school and then you spend pretty much
0: almost the entirety of your career up till now in the public sector.
1: Pretty much, yeah. And can you describe that journey here? I spend a lot of time talking to college students, law students and law graduates and young lawyers. And what I share with them is that the choice to be a public interest lawyer is not just a matter of making a lifestyle choice it's really making a choice in one's life how we want to live our life what kind of values matter to us and so I was very fortunate I went to law school wanting to be a public interest lawyer and I end up being a public interest Mm -hmm. lawyer. I wanted to be a workers' rights lawyer. And I got a Scanlon Fellowship at the National Employment Law Project. Mm -hmm. And I worked on the employment rights of welfare recipients at a time when that was unheard of. I did very interesting cutting edge work very early on in my career. And With the exception of a couple of years, like you said, I've either devoted to public interest law, government service, or law teaching. Mm
0: -hmm. Something that keeps striking me as you speak about your journey is it seems like you developed your confidence and your passion and your purpose early on throughout those transformative years, as you say, right before law school. How did you stay true to that? It sounds like you had such a strong internal compass that most of us in their early 20s do not have i certainly did not
1: have it so what was it about you that made you so sure that this was your purpose in life jing i want whoever is listening to this podcast not to go away with the impression that i have this compass that mm-hmm. never stray mm-hmm. and this is not true mm-hmm. uh, i think very few even very successful people Mm -hmm. never questioned their direction. I questioned the direction of my career more than once. Mm -hmm. But it is also true at the same time that I was very committed to working with people who were uh, marginalized, Mm -hmm. who were disenfranchised, whose voices were never heard, who were invisible Mm -hmm. and that's because i was one of those people too i grew up as i explained earlier as a teenager after i moved here that was filled with racial taunts teenage years in which i was alienated from my own parents who worked all the time i had plenty of language barriers i felt that i was unable to express or explain myself mm-hmm. adequately enough to anyone my chinese was not good enough to explain myself to my parents or my family members looking back it wasn't language skills it was other things <laughs> but at the time I felt like it was langu- because language barrier becomes this I think in many ways the easy answer I agree um, Yeah. I didn't have enough language skills to be a lawyer when in fact it was more than that it was uh, a matter of confidence and having support from my community mm-hmm. to be something that I wasn't expected to be just so we can look at the world we live in right now when government talks about the difficulties of working with hard to rich immigrants or hard mm-hmm. to rich Asian Americans the first thing that is mentioned is oh but there are language barriers mm-hmm. and absolutely that's true there are language barriers but it becomes the easy answer there are other barriers mm-hmm. that we could take away along with providing adequate language access. I Agree with everything you're saying there. Everything
0: that you described that you felt, whether it's feeling alienated or feeling invisible or feeling disempowered in many ways, given your childhood and your background, a lot of that is still going on today. It's something that I've certainly felt growing up. Now it's a blatant issue that's finally getting traction in mainstream media. But in your view, I guess two questions. One, how has your work changed in the last couple of years given the spike in Asian American hate crimes? Two, what is your call to action for Asian American attorneys who are in positions to do
1: something, but maybe they just don't know what they can do? When I was talking about governments or other institutions, or even us individually using language barriers as the default position to throw our hands up and say, what else can we do? I actually was very much thinking about anti-Asian violence, anti-Asian harassment, anti-Asian hate, as the Asian American Bar Association of New York just published a report on this rise in hate crime against Asian Americans since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, actually first in China and then here in New York and in the U.S. So the first thought is anti-Asian violence has always been there from the anti-Chinese hate that resulted in the Chinese Exclusion Act Mm to uh, the murder of Vincent Chin in the year I immigrated Mm -hmm. to the U.S. to now. I think that because of the political climate, individuals who may think those thoughts, those hateful thoughts, now have the comfort to actually say it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And There are no safe places for those of us who are Asian American, who's Chinese American, who have the faces that we do. Just yesterday on the New York City subway, I was harassed. And it was truly ironic because the person who harassed me was clear he had some mental illness. He was speaking very loudly as soon as he came onto the subway. He saw me and saw my reflex of just leaning against my back and grabbing onto my back as a gesture that I was afraid of him or I was superior to him Mm -hmm. and he said oh yeah grab onto your backs yeah what I want from you chopsticks Mm -hmm. and that's when you became from just this evil interaction to Mm -hmm. this anti-asian anti-chinese mm-hmm. hateful incidents and then he went on to say things that just hit me so hard because even after ha- thinking in the united states for 40 years is still true he said these people they should have never left where they came from mm-hmm. that after all these years that i'm still seen as the other I'm just seen as this person from somewhere else and erasing the rest of my identity as the spouse of uh, a Latino man, as mm. the mother of children who were born here, as the mother of multiracial children. And the person who was harassing me was a Latino man.
0: Mm.
1: And so this comes back to your question. What should we do? What should I be calling for the rest of Asian Americans, the rest of Americans to do. And so the first thing is, I want us to recognize our home humanity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want us to be able to see each other as more than just what this face represents. To step back a little bit and say, instead of immediately to the position of what this man has said is so damning that he himself should be damned. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want us not to subject each other to the worst possible thing. Instead, I want us to recognize that each of us have our own biases. And that is true. May it be white supremacists who think their thoughts about people of color Mm -hmm. to one person of color about another person of color. I want us to be able to recognize our own deficiencies. Having said that, I also think that it is really important to stop what is happening. It is very real and it was very scary when this was happening. Mm -hmm. And this was the second time it has happened in the last maybe two months on for, for you personally for me for mm-hmm. me personally and again i'm a very privileged person i come in and out of fairly well-to-do neighborhoods where this happened was not through some poor impoverished neighborhood in new york city i lived in the, the brownstone brooklyn belt right it could happen to anybody it could happen to any person it could happen to anywhere so I want this to be stopped and I think that individually we have a responsibility right we should be able to stand up and divert that person who's perhaps mentally ill from subjecting a person to such hate and I think institutionally we have an obligation to why aren't the district attorney's offices prosecuting these crimes in a more public way Mm-hmm. Right. Perhaps not every each one of these crime can be made out as a hate crime. Mm-hmm. But surely each of these crimes or alleged crimes should be strenuous strenuously investigated and pursued. And we're not quite seeing that.
0: Why do you think that is? And I asked because I had a very similar conversation with a lot of my Asian-American friends because there was a stabbing of an Asian-American man on the New York City subway a few weeks ago. Yes. That barely made headlines. And it angers me. It confuses me. If a member of another minority group goes through something like that, and that is a hate crime, it likely makes the national news. An Asian-American man in a New York City subway get stabbed and people just sit by. And I am racking my brain personally as to why this goes on. Is it because we are not politically active as let's say other groups of color Is it because we are more hesitant to speak up because we have this culture where we keep our heads down and we say yes to authority? And there's a lot of shame in an Asian American culture in terms of rebelling or speaking up. I don't know. And I would love to get your thoughts on that because there are a lot of people in the Asian American community who do come from places of power, places of privilege, who can make a difference. But even for educated, well-intentioned people, We don't really align up together. We don't really rally together. We don't really act together. And I I don't know how to break out of this stigma and this stagnant mentality that we have.
1: So just like any complex problem, there are many complex reasons behind it. And uh, the solutions are going to have to be multifaceted too. Mm -hmm. I think that... It is true that Asian-Americans have a invisibility problem. At the same time, I disagree with you. I don't know if this was a hate crime against a Latino or Black person that you would necessarily get into the news. I think what is different, though, is that if we were organized about it, right, when, you know, African-Americans are organized about something, then it does more likely get onto the news, just as we as Asian Americans, if we were better organized, would get on the news. And I do think that we individually, at least two, are problems ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you an example. Yesterday, when this happened to me, I was really shaken. I was upset. But the first thing I wanted to do was push this out of my mind. Mm-hmm. And then toward the end of the day, I thought, Shouldn't I be doing something? After all, I was a part of the group of people who just. This <laughs> Am I supposed to be doing something else? Oh yeah, maybe the first thing I should do is report it, mm-hmm. and I actually did. And the fact that I even thought of it as one of the last things to do in the day, rather than the first thing I would have done in the day, mm-hmm. say something. I think that all of us need to get out of this zone of comfort and say, look, we all have a responsibility. Individually, we could report it, we can document it. And I, as a part of the Asian American Bar Association, together with people like you, could do more. We could demand more. We could make sure that the media pay attention to us. The whole purpose, actually, behind publishing the report wasn't that we needed necessarily to demonstrate that to ourselves that this was happening we knew this was happening mm-hmm. the whole purpose behind the report was to gather information data behind what we experienced and be able to convince those who have not experienced it that this problem is real as of a magnitude that is so great that it is everyone's problem and I think that together we could band more together, and that we could raise raise our voices, make good trouble. Mm-hmm. And how do you suggest we do that, other than reporting,
0: let's say, everyday harassment or hate crimes?
1: So I think individually, as I said, we should be reporting it. I think that as members of the Asian American Bar Association, we run a very active pro bono and community service committee, which I co chair and a. As a part of the pro bono work, we actively recruit volunteers to do a number of different things from Mm -hmm. offering legal advice and legal information to now pairing those who have been victims and survivors of harassment and hate crimes so that they could have support to make those reports so that they can get over these language or cultural barriers to make these reports and so that we can take these experiences to elected officials who have the responsibility of doing something about them. So I encourage all of the Um, the listeners who are interested in this issue to contact us and to volunteer to be paired up or to be advocates for these victims and survivors of anti-Asian crimes and anti-Asian hate. Um, Karen, can you share some
0: stories about clients that you've been helping in terms of what they've been going through? What kinds of experiences are people going through right now that you're trying to help?
1: Yeah. So I'm a civil and workers' rights lawyer in my private practice. I've only uh, been in private practice for a couple of years. And I'm actually a wage and hour specialist, along with specializing in employment discrimination cases. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you a, a good handful of my clients are those who are Asian Americans and who are hitting the bamboo ceiling. Any employee would be reluctant, right, to file <laughs> complaints against their employers. Mm-hmm. But I also think that Asian Americans perhaps have even more reasons to be reluctant. But I think it is also true that those of us who immigrated here in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and have done everything that we were supposed to do, put our nose to the grindstone, have worked really hard, and yet have not gotten that promotion. Mm -hmm. And I represent clients just like that. Decorated law enforcement officer who worked for 10 years and time and again see people are less qualified to be promoted over him. Asian American postal workers who are passed for promotions in favor of white men by supervisors who are themselves people of color, women of color. Patriarchy is a system a political system of power and control is not just who's exercising it and we are all subjected as i said earlier to these stereotypes and i do i see asian americans who are passed over by the very same people who should be promoting them because they would know better the how hot As people of color, we would have to work in order to get to where we are. And yet I keep seeing those situations too.
0: You speak about the bamboo ceiling and the the patriarchy and the systematic obstacles that we face. What do you advise for young attorneys or anyone who constantly does feel other? Mm -hmm. Is there anything we can do to empower ourselves to break those ceilings and break those stereotypes?
1: If I had not, been a community organizer and worked with other uh, Chinese-American community organizers, other community organizers of color, I would not have felt as empowered. I think that for any young lawyers, young professionals, it's imperative that they find themselves a community. Which is why i recommend to any young lawyer to join the asian american bar association and if it is a lawyer of color who's not asian american find an affinity bar association that you feel a part of that community we all need role models we all need mentors at every stage of our lives and so it's important for us to find those mentors and for us to pay it forward by mentoring others. Mm-hmm. So that would be my first piece of advice. Get mentors, mentor others. And the second piece of advice is no successful career actually is on a strict line. I think that good things comes to us sometimes by accidents, and sometimes horrible things happen as a part of life. And I think that it's important for us to be flexible, to remain resilient. As the great philosopher Bob Molly would say, when one door closed, mm-hmm. many others open. Mm-hmm. And we just need to keep an eye out and make sure that we make use of those open doors. What
0: brought you to times in your career where you felt like your resilience was tested? I
1: was a law professor. Mm -hmm. For three years I was a clinical teaching fellow At Yale Law School for two years Mm -hmm. And then I was an assistant law professor Teaching a civil rights A civil litigation clinic In Syracuse University And it was my dream job I love to teach And I love to learn And there's no better way to learn From a community of like-minded people Like Mm -hmm professors and students and vice versa, but my husband wasn't able to find work in Syracuse. Mm. And we had just gotten married when I started my job in Syracuse, and near the end of my first year, my husband was still unable to make the move to Syracuse. He would have to give up the work that he was doing. And And what was he doing at that time? He's not a lawyer. He was at that time working at a global advertising company. He's in technology and he was working for global clients on web-based advertising. And there was none of that work in Syracuse at the time. And I made the very difficult decision to move back to New York City. I declined reappointments because if my husband weren't going to be able to move there, we would have had to live separately and it would not be conducive at all to starting a family. Hmm. Both of us really wanted to start a family. Hmm. And it was one of those things where if I had stayed and continued to live separately from my husband, we probably would not have started a family and I probably would regret it. And so instead, I left my teaching position and I also regretted it. Hmm. You know, it's one of those things where there was no good choice. And it did very much test my commitment to remaining a lawyer, remaining, not just in law teaching, but remaining a lawyer, period. And what really helped me that sense of commitment back actually was by giving back i did pro bono work on behalf of asylum seekers mm-hmm. and those asylum seekers thought that i helped them gain their life back so to speak right gain a toehold in mm-hmm. united states little did they know they gave me back the mm-hmm. sense of commitment and direction about my career wow that's such a good example and a very powerful example
0: because i think especially for me and my friends we're in our 30s for the most part late 20s through i would say early 40s and a lot of us especially women think about how to fit a family in a demanding job mm-hmm. how did you think about it i know you just gave an example where the family did come first what was that decision like for you? Because I'm sure at that time, you felt like you were giving up your dream career. How would you advise young women going through the same thoughts about how to fit
1: a family into their ambitions? It was a process. It wasn't just I declined and I moved back to New York City, and everything was just fine with my husband. My Mm -hmm. husband and I still had to negotiate what this huge move for me really meant for me and for us together. We still had to negotiate even after we decided to have children what responsibilities belong to whom.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And it wasn't necessarily fitting a family in my career. At times it was how to fit a career into my family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It was a negotiation process. I will share with you something, though. I was very work-oriented. I was very much a forward-looking person. I was always planning. And the reason why I suggest to young lawyers be flexible, be resilient, is that few things really happen in a strict line. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes disappointments happen, terrible things happen that we have no control over. An example is when My children were actually both born as preemies. They were both Mm -hmm. born prematurely. Usually a full-term pregnancy is 40 weeks. My -hmm. son was born at 28 weeks. I barely had my last trimester. And it was horrible and it happened suddenly and I wasn't supposed to leave my work for parental leave for weeks to come and I had to drop everything. And what was horrible actually in some ways became a good experience in that when push comes to shove, I realized where my values lie. My values lie with having a family. Mm -hmm. What was most important was my children. And it was okay at the end for me to drop everything Mm work-wise so that I could raise a child the way he should have been raised. Mm -hmm. Um, And a couple of years later, when I had my daughter, even though I tried to do everything to stop what happened to her brother from happening to her, she also was born as a preemie. And she was born 27 weeks Mm -hmm. gestation. And I spent the following year taking care of her day to day. And I still cherish every day that I had with each one of them. And we were very fortunate. They are now both teenagers. They are both independent, capable young mm-hmm. people. And I'm really glad that, again, when push comes to shove, I realize where my values lie. Mm-hmm. And how did you make sure to stay
0: true to those values while also balancing a a full-time job? I think women were
1: called upon to do a lot of things all at the same time. Definitely. And very very often, not only at the same time, but very well at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that it's not possible. In my view, it's not possible. We can do something really well, but we may be neglecting another area. And what was important was to learn and make the decision for myself was most important at that particular time. When my children came so very early, they were the most important thing in the world for me. Mm -hmm. And taking a couple of years off did no favors to my career. That was the right thing to do. No words of wisdom for amazingly talented young women lawyers accept that you do what's right by you instead of listening to what other people expect you to do that's great
0: What's next for you? What do you envision for your career and your
1: family in the future ahead? After 10 years at the state attorney general's office, I wanted to quote unquote, do more. I wanted to do more for the Asian American community, for the immigrant community. And I actually transitioned into doing not-for-profit work. I was in not-for-profit management for several years. And... I was at the New York Immigration Coalition Mm -hmm. as the director of membership and capacity building before and after President Trump was elected. And I was really glad I was there. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was also really burned out by it. And at that moment in time, I could have looked for another job like that. But I also made a decision that I wanted something for myself. I wanted to be able to build something that I'm proud of. So I started my own law practice, both because of my aspiration Mm -hmm. and because of necessity. My aspiration is that I can do something about providing high caliber and yet affordable legal services to clients who are working class, who can afford the prices of lawyers from big law, but who still should have the highest caliber of legal representation so that they could file that complaint. Uh, against the bamboo ceiling without feeling they have nowhere to go and on, on a personal note how do you
0: take care of your clients your family while also taking care of karen what do you do to be a whole person and how do you keep yourself not just whole but rejuvenated energized true to who you are
1: that's also a process too and every day i get out and i think about what i need that day what i need to do but also what i need in order to do what i need to do on good days i get to meditate on good days i get to spend some time with my children with my spouse on good days i get to be thankful for what i have and not every day is a good day there are some days where i'm so frazzled that nothing seems to be going right but then we get up the following day and we keep doing it and we accept the challenges as well as appreciate the bounty that's a part of life.
0: Karen, thank you so much for your time and thank you for all the important work you do.
1: You're truly an inspiration. Okay, that means a lot to me. Thank you.